Well, good morning. Thrilled to be with you here on Palm Sunday as we move into Holy Week. This is a week when many of us have our hearts and our attentions drawn towards the events that happened 2,000 plus years ago uh, as, as Christ's sacrifice and more importantly, his resurrection are things that we can celebrate. And so this week, we find ourselves in the book of John in chapter 18. And chapter 18 in the book of John covers three specific events. Encourage you, if you've got your Bibles, to be opening them to them. And in those three events, we're going to find about Jesus' arrest, his trial before the high priest, Annas, and his trial before Pilate. But we're going to take a slightly unusual approach to this scripture this morning. What we're going to do is recognize that John, who is one of the four gospel writers in scripture, is the most unique of the gospel writers. He is, the other three gospels are often called the synoptic gospels because they often cover very similar texts in very similar ways, but with different emphases. So their intention is to reach a slightly different audience or to make a slightly different emphasis. But sometimes you can find a lot and learn a lot by comparing those gospels to what you see in the gospel of John. Because John will omit elements that are common in all three of the other books. And he will drop in anecdotes, drop in details that are unique to that gospel. And so of all the ways to approach John 18, we're actually going to major on the minors because in those minors, we're going to find a major message. And that message is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And John is calling that out in a number of unique ways, not all of them, we find from other, from other gospel writers. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna read this in three sections and then we're gonna dig into some of those details. So if you've got your Bible in front of you, we're starting in John 18, one. When, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed them, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I'm he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you I'm he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Quite a lot of action here is taking place in the garden. We, we know from the other three gospels that this olive grove was known by the um, Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is something that means olive press. So this was a grove of olives around an olive press. It was a relatively large area. But if you're like me, when you hear a phrase like the Garden of Gethsemane, it may be hard for you not to modernize that and put it in a modern context. I quite frankly think of a nice quarter acre backyard with a border of daffodils growing around the backyard. This was a very different sort of garden. This was a very different sort of context. What this was was, was up a hill. There's areas that were in with caves. There was a garden. Yes, there were olive trees. Yes, there was this space, but it wasn't that small. And we'll, we'll learn a little bit more about that. But even before we get to the garden, John drops his first detail that's easy for us to overlook. 
Because what does he say? He says, when he finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. I don't know about you, that means absolutely nothing to me. He crossed the Kidron Valley. Great. He's doing this on the day of Passover, and we know that the Kidron Valley is east of Jerusalem. But what we may not know is that the Kidron Valley also had a brook that flowed through it during the wet season, and it was an area where a lot of the runoff from the city of Jerusalem came down the hill through the valley and out to the sea. But this was a time of year that was Passover. And so this was a time of year that the temple on the top of the mountain in Jerusalem was particularly active. There were sacrifices being made from dawn till dusk, actually from overnight to overnight, from the start of the Sabbath on the night of Thursday night to the evening of the next day were sacrifices continually. Josephus actually tells us there were 200,000 lambs slaughtered each year on the temple. And just to put that in context, that's two or three every second for 24 hours. And all of the blood from those lambs was flowing into the Kidron Valley. And so when we bring that element to bear, what we know is that as they approached the olive garden and as they approached the olive, the olive garden, the olive grove, um, sorry, they were not going to olive garden, unfortunately. (laughs) They were reminded of Passover and they were reminded of all of these lambs being slaughtered because their blood was flowing down. And yes, they stepped over it or, or made their way through it however best they could. But this is a contextualizing of everything that's going to happen in this, pa- in this passage because what Jesus was doing when he was fulfilling the law and fulfilling the prophets was to make sure that these sacrifices need not be made because he was going to make one sacrifice. If you're one of those people who has signed up uh, for the Seder meal tomorrow, we're going to see how the Passover, which is the time of year that this was, this feast that they had just celebrated, why it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And John places this statement of crossing the Kidron Valley at the beginning of this passage to contextualize it, to say, Jesus is fulfilling this part of the law. The part of the law that required sacrifice for sin, a sacrifice for sin that had grown so much that it was nearly a quarter million lambs that were being killed every year just for this one feast. And he is saying that his death was sufficient to cover all of that, not just for one year, but permanently. And so when Jesus is fulfilling that, this detail reminds us of everything that was up at stake in the next few hours, in the next days, as Jesus is arrested and then tried and then tried again and again, and ultimately scourged and and crucified. The next item we can pull out from this passage, though, also relates to who comes in to this grove of olives to arrest Jesus. Because when we read that a detachment of guards come to see him along with officials from the Sanhedrin or officials from the Jewish leadership, what we think of is kind of this small group. I don't know. I think of a couple police officers coming in with a pastor or two. I mean, that's just the modernization I can take into this. That's not what this says. A detachment of Roman soldiers in this case literally means a tenth of a legion. That's 500 people. Now, not every scholar thinks that 500 soldiers were there, but this was clearly a much larger group. And you may ask, why are we bringing 500 soldiers or some large number of soldiers to arrest Jesus? I think we can read into that, that the projection that had been made to the leadership of of the Roman garrison at the time is, we have a dangerous revolutionary on our side. Remember what happened last Sunday or last Sabbath day. Last Sabbath day, 
There was a man who, walked, who came into Jerusalem and was hailed very much like we hail our Caesars, very much like we hail our leaders. He was riding on the back of a donkey, yes, but they were showering him with palm branches and adulation. This is somebody who is clearly geared up to challenge the authority of Rome. And we know that happened quite often. In fact, we're gonna find a name at the end of this passage of somebody else who had done that and had been arrested in the past. But the perspective that we have is that this is a large group of soldiers who are coming to arrest someone dangerous. And so the rest of the arrest story reads a little weird if you realize that what they're expecting is either combat or someone running away and someone fleeing. And so when they come into the garden, they have a set of expectations that are clearly not being met. And what's interesting is if you look at what a lot of the the people who were Jesus' followers wanted Jesus to be as a king and as a Messiah was exactly what the Romans feared he was. And that was this revolutionary leader because what did they want to do? They wanted to throw off the shackles of being under Rome's occupation. They wanted an opportunity to reign and rule themselves independently. They didn't like their current situation and what they wanted was a king that would deliver them from that. And so again, what this passage is teaching and part through the interplay between Pilate and Jesus that we'll get to shortly is also this recognition that yes, I am a king, but not that kind of a king. I'm a king, but not someone who is going to take over and lead through military might. And in fact, the rest of this story will go to tell how he is the true king of Israel. He is the one that fulfills what the prophets said the king was going to be. He fulfills the law by doing everything that the law demands, but he doesn't do it in a way that was expected. The other thing that's interesting about this group is that when they come in, they're carrying torches and lanterns. And they're carrying torches and lanterns seems logical to us. It's night, they don't have artificial light. Clearly that's what the torches and the lanterns were for. But someone with more time on their hands than I have did the math and realized that this was actually a full moon night. This particular Passover in this particular year was a time of a full moon. So they had full light. They were able to see, maybe not well, Maybe not like you could see during the daytime, but why is everybody bringing torches and lanterns? Because they expect to have to search for Jesus. They expect to have to search to find who this person is that they're there to arrest. They did not expect what happens next, which was Jesus to walk up to them and say, who are you looking for? Because when he asked who they were looking for, they used the name that they thought was a name of scorn, Jesus of Nazareth, because quote, no good can come from Nazareth. And he says, I am he. Except the words he actually used were I am. The same Greek words that are used in the Septuagint translation of God's name itself. I am. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I'm he. I am. And then an event occurs that is kind of presented without much explanation, which is that everybody fell back and fell down. There must have been some sense of power, some sense of impact. And it wasn't anything magical with the words because he repeats the words 15 seconds later. And they tell him again that they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I told you already, that's me. And the reaction of the people who are there to arrest Jesus doesn't really change from the fact that they didn't meet their expectations. They treated him like you would treat a revolutionary. They bound him and arrested him. And in this case, they brought him to a high priest. But before this happens, we get one other anecdote. And that's that Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and uh, struck the high priest's servant, cutting off Malchus's right ear. And Jesus told Peter, put your sword away. 
That's not how this is going to go. And it's interesting, this passage is, for most people, when we look at Peter, it's almost the nadir or the the worst aspects of Peter's behavior. Because what does Peter do? By the end of this chapter, he's going to deny Jesus three times. But I think there's something a lot more sympathetic about Peter in this passage. Because you have to remember, less than a few hours ago, he has sat around a table and told Jesus that he would go and die for Jesus. And he sees a group of soldiers coming to attack and coming to arrest. And what is he basically saying? I'm going to put my behavior where my big mouth was, and I'm going to show you what I'm willing to do to protect Jesus. I cannot imagine with a group of somewhere between 50 and 500 soldiers, you really thought attacking one person was going to save Jesus. In many ways, he was trying to back up what he said and prove Jesus wrong. When Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And he said, not only am I not going to do that, I'm going to do exactly what I said, and I'm going to go down swinging, and I'm going to go down fighting. And yet that's not what happens. We know from other passages that Jesus heals Malchus's ear. John didn't even include that detail in this particular story. Isn't it interesting, the things that are emphasized and de-emphasized? Now, this is, sounds like perhaps a trivial analogy, but I was trying to figure out what would it be like to be in Peter's shoes there. When you basically say, I'm giving my entire life to this individual, I'm giving my entire life to allegiance to Jesus, and Jesus challenges my commitment, and he challenges my belief. Again, as I say, trivial example, but think about this. You're a Duke fan in the Duke-UNC basketball game two weeks ago. Jeff, a Duke alum, clearly understands the analogy. If you were there the night before Duke is playing UNC in the final four of the basketball tournament in the final game of their coach's illustrious career, and you say, I am a fan of Duke, and I turn and say, Jeff, by this time tomorrow night, you will be cheering for the Tar Heels. No. No. And maybe a younger version of Jeff might have shown me up by showing up at the game dressed as a Cameron crazy in the blue with a giant D on his chest to show, no, I will never root for the Tar Heels. And yet what we find is, honestly, in the analogous story, that's exactly what happens to Peter. But Peter starts with good intention and he starts doing what he thinks is the solution because he doesn't understand what Jesus is after. Jesus has prayed. We heard last week for the four things that Jesus prayed. He prayed for God to be glorified. He prayed for his disciples to be protected. He prayed for them to become more holy and he prayed for them to remain unified. At the end of this chapter, you could argue some of those prayers are in tatters. Every one of them came true. But this is Peter trying to figure out how to answer the prayer on God's behalf rather than letting God answer the prayer on his behalf. And so we've put ourselves in this first situation in Jesus's arrest. And what we've recognized is that Jesus is approaching the law and the leadership at the time to say, you know what, I am putting myself under the law as it is written. I am not here to rebel against this particular authority. And yet I am fulfilling prophecy. And we're gonna find those prophecies come forth more and more in the next two episodes. So if you've got your Bible again, let me encourage you to look down in verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. 
Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. Peter replied, I'm not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I've always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus had said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, you're not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Some context for this meeting Annas is somewhat of a famous figure in Jewish history. He was the high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD. And in 15 AD, he was deposed by the Romans, who would no longer allow him to be high priest, uh, ostensibly because he was corrupt, and ostensibly because he was um, using his office uh, for personal gain. And we know from the Talmud, which was written about the period of time, he had a very bad reputation even within, within that community. And in the years since, in the 15 to 18 years since he had been high priest, four of his sons had been high priest, and now his son-in-law is high priest. And so we can see Annas is kind of the power behind the office, whether he was the office holder or not. And in fact, when Jesus challenges the high priest, he's treated very much like the high priest. How dare you challenge the high priest, he's asked. Even though he wasn't the high priest, that was the esteem in which he was held and that was the accord in which um, this, this setting was taking place. They didn't take Jesus to the, the actual high priest, they took him to Annas. And they took him in a situation where he is bound and he took him to Annas and Annas does something that to us seems perhaps logical, but within the context of the time was somewhat scandalous because Jewish law demanded that witnesses come forward there be at least two of those witnesses, that their testimony be found to be credible, and that that testimony would then be brought before the defense. The defense would be given a chance to defend themselves, and then you had to wait until the next day after a conviction before a sentence could be passed on the person who was convicted. At this point, all of that was inconvenient. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. They felt like they had a limited window to do that. And so what they did was try and give a facade of doing things appropriately while at the same time looking after the ends, which was that they really wanted Jesus executed. And they wanted, and they started by asking Jesus, tell us everything that you have said. Basically, draw your own accusations against yourself because we're going to convict you anyway. And Jesus responds in a a unique couple of ways. The first thing he does is kind of call them out not directly, but indirectly, for not following the rules, not following the way that the, um, the process is supposed to take place. He said, um, I've spoken openly. I've always taught in synagogues or in the temple. So basically, if there's something that I have taught that is heretical, that's treasonous, that's worth this much um, accusation and blame, anybody who's been there 
including, frankly, most of you who I have offended when I have made those statements in public, you guys can come and make an accusation. You guys can come and accuse me of saying whatever I said that was wrong. And yet one of the things we know about this audience is that one of the things that frustrated them so much about Jesus was that they, they disagreed with his conclusions, but they had a very hard time proving his conclusions false from their scriptures. So it was a whole lot easier just to say, jump to your conclusions, tell us what your conclusions are, allow us to reject your conclusions, and then allow us to reject you. And yet what Jesus is saying when he says, all of my statements I have made publicly, is also something for us to recognize. It's another of those important details. Because there have been Christian churches through the years, starting very soon after Christ's death and resurrection, all the way till now, that have always felt like, you know what, in order to follow Jesus, you can't just know the Bible. You have to know the Bible and this special bit of insight or this, this special bit of knowledge. Or there are truths that were hidden and, and kept secret for dozens of years, for hundreds of years, for millennia. And, and you have to understand and know these truths before you can truly be a Christian. And Jesus' response to Annas is a great response to that as well. No, what I have taught, I have taught broadly. I want everybody to understand truth. I want everybody to understand, and you'll find when he's talking to Pilate here in the third episode, he basically said, everybody on the side of truth listens to me. And basically, I want everybody to have the opportunity to learn this. This isn't secret. This isn't separate. This isn't something that only my disciples know. It's only people who sought out the information by coming to see me at the synagogue, maybe. But ultimately, there's nothing unique about specific things that were said in specific contexts. But what Jesus is saying is this truth, this way in which I fulfill the law, this way in which I challenge your interpretation of the prophets, this, this way in which you need to have a better understanding of what the fulfillment of the law and the prophets is. It's something I've been telling you consistently. I've been telling it to you publicly. Annas doesn't like that. The conversation continues in, in, and the accusations continue to be made. And ultimately, Jesus says, if I said something wrong, testify to what is wrong. We don't hear any more of the dialogue. All we now know is that Anna sends him over to Caiaphas. But in between, we get yet another incident with Peter. Peter, who's already denied Jesus once on the, on the way into this trial, um, denies him two more times. But think again and put yourself in Peter's shoes. You've just come through a situation where you've spent the night You've pledged your allegiance to Jesus, telling him you die for him. You've backed that up by actually going and pulling out a sword in Jesus's defense, at least in your interpretation of it. But then you've been publicly rebuked by Jesus. And Jesus says, let everybody go. And the Roman guards apparently let everybody go. There's only two disciples we see. One of them isn't named, but is broadly assumed to be John, the author of this gospel. And the other is Peter. So Peter is still, more than the other 10, he's still following. He's still trying to figure out what is going on. And yet we know from Luke and from other gospel writers that when he followed, he followed from a distance. So John may have been right there next to Jesus. Peter was at a distance further back. We don't know whether that's why he didn't make it into the courtyard at the beginning or exactly what happened. But in the three times he's challenged, he's challenged in different ways with different limitations. But meanwhile, the other disciple clearly knew somebody in Annas' house and was known well enough to just be welcomed in to that setting and actually ultimately comes back and gets Peter later. And that's what, when he ends up around the fire. But 
Peter at this point is probably trying to figure out what is going on, where does he stand in all of this? And the, the person who is at the gate just looks at him scornfully. And the first time he denies him, just scornfully says, you're not one of, those, of one of that guy's disciples, are you? And Peter at this point just says no. This doesn't feel as much of a betrayal as it does further on. This is just like, oh, no, no, no. I, I don't know what's going on right now. I'm still trying to get my bearings. I don't wanna get sucked into this situation. I'm just gonna tell that little white lie that gets me out of perceived trouble and I'm gonna move forward from there. But then unfortunately, he, things get worse. He now gets let in. He's into the courtyard. He may not know exactly what's going on. Uh, he may not have... We don't get a whole lot of insight into what's going on in Peter's head, but he's standing there warming himself around the fire. He's cold, it's late at night. He's trying to figure out what's going on. He's there ostensibly to, to support and protect Jesus. And we don't know whether it, he talked in his Galilean accent, which was apparently strong, gave him away. We don't exactly know what it was that occurred to people around that fire that he was a disciple, at least for the second time. And the second time he's asked again, well, you're not one of his disciples, are you? And again, he kind of agrees. Nope. That's not me. Don't want to cause any waves here. I'm just here. But then the third time, unfortunately, one of Malchus's um, family basically says, hey, wait, I was in the olive grove with you a couple hours ago. Didn't I see you there? I saw you there, didn't I? And that's when Peter calls down curses and says, no, I was not there. And throughout all of this, you, you see someone who's struggling to support Jesus and yet ultimately is not able to do so. And he's not able to do so in a way that is, that is, is heartbreaking. And ultimately we'll see Jesus fully restores Peter into his fellowship and into their friendship. But we can look at what happens to us when we start to recognize what we think God wants when it doesn't actually match what God really wants. See, a lot of times what we're seeing from all of the groups who are involved in this story is people for whom the ends justify the means. We know the outcome we want. Now we just need to figure out a way to get there. And so I'm gonna make the best decision I can that I believe is consistent with getting the outcome that I'm looking for. And unfortunately, over time, we all know what happens there. We end up having pure motives and pure motives for means, and then unfortunately, uh, for ends, and then we ended up with the corrupted motives for means, and oh, I'm just gonna compromise here. I'm just gonna bend there. I'm just gonna say, no, 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 it's not me. Oh, oh shoot, I may have been found out. Now I'm feeling like I'm at risk because literally the family member of someone whose ear I just cut off is now questioning if I'm the person who just assaulted their family member. And so now I have to self-protect. This, this is held in distinction from how Jesus answers. Jesus answers truthfully. Jesus embraces it. Where is Jesus of Nazareth? I am he. That's me. I'm not wanting these ends to come. We don't actually get, this is one of those things that was missing from the John passage is his prayer um, within the garden of Gethsemane where he is praying so intensely. He's, um, he has sweating like drops of blood coming off of his head. He's so intensely worried about the ends that are going to come from the means he knows he needs to follow. And yet what does he do? He continues to fulfill the law and he continues to fulfill the prophecy even when he knows where that is leading. Meanwhile, Peter may not know where it's leading, but he's not able to continue and follow through. So now we find ourselves moving into the third scene from chapter 18, and this is Jesus before Pilate. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. 
They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he weren't a criminal, they replied, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words of Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born. And for this reason, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What's truth, Pilate asked. With this, he went out to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Couple other details from this incident with Pilate. Pilate is somewhat of a notorious figure also in history. He was a person who didn't have a whole lot of uh, confidence in his rule. He married into the family of Caesar, which is why he was given even this small bit of responsibility. But he was known to be someone who would do what was convenient. And so when the Jews come to him and basically said, if he hadn't done anything wrong, we wouldn't have brought you to him. There's the sense in which Pilate, for Pilate, that might've been enough. Okay, all right. If you say he's done something bad, he's clearly done something bad. You go ahead and take care of it and use your own law to judge Jesus. And then the Jews come back with a statement that yes, but we can't execute people. And this is interesting because when Jews executed people, we see an example of this with Stephen, the apostle Stephen in in the book of Acts. When the Jews executed people, they did it by stoning. When the Romans executed people, they did it by crucifixion. And there had been prophecy that the Messiah would be hung on a tree. We see this from Deuteronomy. We see this in Jesus' predictions of his own death. There were prophecies of how Jesus was going to die that didn't match him being executed in a Jewish way according to a Jewish custom. And that's exactly what happened. He was executed by Romans according to a Roman custom, not in that way. And yet the dialogue and the back and forth that occurs between Pilate and Herod and Annas and Caiaphas and the whole process of going through this is done so that the scriptures and the prophecies can be fulfilled. And throughout this entire time, Jesus responds to Pilate appropriately, but there's a line in there that I have misread many times, which is when Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, is this your own idea or did others talk to you about me? And I don't know, part of me thinks, is he just like stalling for time here? Why why that particular question? Why is he asking Pilate, Is this your idea or somebody else's? And I think it's important for us to understand that what he's doing is drawing a key distinction here because who is asking the question matters for how he answers the question. People want a king, but what does that king? Jesus is our king. He is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of prophecy, but not in the way that many people who were in this setting, who were in this room, wanted a king to be. And when Pilate reacts, I'm not a Jew, It was your people and your chief priests who handed over. Then Jesus can answer the question and he can answer it within the context that Pilate was asking, basically saying, you've been accused of this by your people and that's where he says, my kingdom is not of this world. So for the people who are telling you that I'm the king of the Jews in that way, yes, I am king of the Jews. 
I'm the fulfillment of a kingdom that was put in place long before anyone here was alive that finds its fulfillment in my person and in the actions that are going to take place in the next few hours and the next few days. But, Pilate, I'm not a king the way you mean a king, like somebody who's going to militarily challenge Caesar Augustus to reign the Roman Empire. And then Jesus ends that statement with one of my favorite lines. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. You may have heard the phrase, all truth is God's truth. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you want to believe the truth, you're on Jesus's side. And if you value the truth, listen to what Jesus is saying. Because what he is saying through this chapter is a microcosm of what he was saying through his whole life and the way that we can interpret his time here on earth is to recognize that he understands the true fulfillment of the law. He understands the true fulfillment of the prophets. Fulfillment of the law in this context did not mean rising up to compete against the Roman Empire. It meant establishing a kingdom that was not of this world. Fulfilling the law did not mean continuing to sacrifice 200,000 lambs every year, three or four, every, two or three every second of a whole day to, to sacrifice for all of the sins that we commit, all of the things that we do in which we fall short. He was able to do that in one single action, in one single act of sacrifice. And yes, that sacrifice was daunting. He was so overwhelmed by it, it brought him to the point of emotional exhaustion but he still fulfilled the law. And we keep finding ways in which he fulfills the prophets. The way he was sacrificed, the way um, he was betrayed, all of the ways in which he fulfills prophecy. And so when we look across chapter 18 of John, this is a compelling chapter. I've kind of skirted around, dropped into some of the details. I strongly encourage you, this kind of reads a bit like a thriller, in extremely condensed form. If you are one of those people who's going through a Bible reading plan, and I hope you are, add this to your Bible reading plan tonight. Pull this out again and pull out John 18 and read it through. Listen for the echoes of how those details play across the whole storyline. See how Jesus is fulfilling the law and the prophets. If you're really adventurous, read parallel passages. Read Luke 22. Read the other passages in Mark and Matthew. And if you don't have a Bible reading plan, this would be a great way to start a Bible reading plan by starting with John 18 tonight and then picking up a Bible reading plan tomorrow. But I think as we start to look at what Holy Week looks like and as we're looking forward and, and we've got Good Friday coming up in five days, we've got Easter Sunday coming up in seven days. We are celebrating a sacrifice that was made by Jesus and we are celebrating his triumph over that sacrifice. Triumphing not over the sacrifice, but triumphing over death. Triumphing over the consequences of our misbehavior. Tri triumphing over all of that. And so as we're coming into that week, I think it, it can be a very good challenge for us to recognize is this is what Jesus sacrificed. If this is what he was willing to endure, what are the ends that we're looking after that are justifying the means that we wouldn't want to necessarily come out? Where are we compromising our decisions because we are confident we know the desired outcome? Maybe that's a personal outcome. Maybe we think it's God doing that. But let's not be like Peter, trying to do what we think God wants to do the way he doesn't want to do it. 
And so I think that becomes our challenge is how can we be obedient in this context that says, listen, we know the outcome we want, but we have to leave that in God's hands. We know the, the ultimate goal of all of this. And to, to anchor back again, if you were here last Sunday to the four prayers that Jesus prayed with his disciples, he prayed for God's glory. He prayed for his disciples' protection. He prayed for them to become more holy. He prayed for them to be unified. And at this moment in the story, it doesn't look like all of that is going to happen. But here we are 2,000 years later, singing of God's glory through these very incidents that don't look like he is being glorified. Christians have been protected. Yes, the 11 of the 12 disciples may have uh, died martyrs' deaths, but guess what? There are still Christians. Look around. You're sitting next to some of them. God's followers have been protected. And because of learning through what Jesus has done here and learning how he can fulfill the law, we have greater access to truth than a lot of the people who are listening to here do. And we have a greater access to holiness. And unity within the church is always a challenge and it can always be difficult, but we still have one gospel that we read. We're still reading through these same four gospels around the world around the entire globe for thousands of years in a unified way to come to grips with who God is and how he wants to have a relationship with us and how he sacrificed for us and how he overcame all the consequences of all of our screw-ups all together. So that, let me, let me close this in prayer. Dear God, thank you for being arrested, for going through trial after trial, for dealing with things even worse in chapters to come. Uh, on your way to Calvary, on, way, on your way to a sacrifice and a, um, a death through crucifixion, through, through ways that none of us would wish um, for ourselves or for our, even for our enemies. Lord, help us follow your example in not seeking our own ends through whatever means, but that we would recognize that continued obedience in the small things, the medium things, and the large things, it's all the same. It's obedience. It's what does it mean to follow what you call us to do? What does it mean um, to truly serve the fulfillment of the law and to fulfillment of all the prophets? That we can recognize that there is relevance between what you did um, and the sacrifice that you made and how we live on a daily basis through the decisions we make each day, each morning, each afternoon, each evening, throughout all of that. And we thank you for the example. We thank you for the sacrifice. And we thank you for the encouragement, Lord, um, that you do know the truth and that all those who are on the side of truth listen to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.